Hey guys, welcome to the Elite Coaching Podcast, episode eight, where we're going to be running through a hypertrophy roundtable discussion with Mark and Dermot and also a QA. Mark and Dermot are going to be guest speaking at the event we have in October, our hypertrophy weekend, and I am really looking forward to getting them both in the podcast, both two really educated coaches who have the first hand experience with themselves and clients and a really deep understanding of hypertrophy. Boys, how are we? How are you, man? Good, good, good. Right, so what we're going to kick off with, we're going to just fire off a couple of questions to start off because I know a lot of people did ask questions and we want to just get them out of the way before we run through um, what we want to talk about today. So the first question that came in was from Ryan Mooney and he asked, what is better for muscle building, hypertrophy or progressive overload? Damn it, you were correct. Okay, so progressive overload is going to be a way of driving the mechanisms of hypertrophy. So you adding a little bit of weight to the bar is a way of you continuing to progress in mechanical tension. So these two things aren't necessarily, like you're not going to train hypertrophy or train progressive overload progressive overload is going to be like what you're physically going to do, adding weight to the bar to drive hybrid. Have we got anything to add there, lads? Um, go ahead. Um, yeah, I think you, you definitely hit the, hit the nail on the head there. And just, just having that good foundational understanding of, of what, what the mechanisms are, I suppose. You know, when we're looking at mechanical tension, just think the progressive overload stimulus and when we're looking at then you also have metabolic stress which can really come into play which is higher volume and then you have muscular damage and i just think think about eccentric controls we're talking about like optimal muscular damage those all can contribute to, to hypertrophy so when, when you're looking at that question i think you just need to understand really what hypertrophy is and then understand what the mechanisms are that can drive hypertrophy. Now, we're not going to answer like exactly what hypertrophy is in this question because I do want Dermot to speak himself in a few moments on exactly what hypertrophy is in a sense from a cellular perspective. Um, but just to kind of answer your question, I, I feel you, you, can, you can get hypertrophy from progressive overload and you can get it from metabolic stress and you can get it from muscular damage. It's not one or the other. It's, it's progressive overload can cause hypertrophy. Mark, would you agree? Yeah, you pretty much summed up there, Adam. Um, I think people have a misconception that progressive overloads is is a different thing altogether than hypertrophy, and that's not the case at all. Like people think like that progressive overload is just trying to throw more weight onto the bar, trying to get as strong as possible. But it's not only more weight on the bar. Like we we can look at um, the amount of reps we get, our time with attention, our rest times you know, our execution, if we can improve any of these things from session to session, that's also progressively overloading the muscle, you know. So I think whatever route you go down in your training, whether it's more kind of, you know, volume style training or whatever it is, like there has to be some sort of progressive overload there in some way, shape or form. Like if you go in and you are doing the same sessions week in, week out, you know, same weight, same rep ranges. There's no actual struggle or risk to progress 
well then you know you are not going to cause a stimulus needed to progress you know what i mean so there has to be some sort of progression there in any training style you work with yeah absolutely i think you you definitely hit the nail on the head so yeah for yourself ryan i just think it's really about under understanding on a bit of a deeper level about what can cause hypertrophy and then you know, like I said, in a moment, we're going to let Dermot speak on exactly really what, what hypertrophy is when we actually get into the, the roundtable um, discussion. So we hope we answered that question for you, dude. Um, Shauna B, how many times per week would you train a muscle group to increase muscle mass? Who wants to take that one? Go on, Mark, you get it. Yeah, so um, I think it comes down to ideally, I... Like to hit a muscle group twice a week, um, depending on on what muscle group it is. Like there are smaller muscle groups, you know, such as maybe calves, arms, delts. In some cases, that we can maybe hit three times a week, depending on on our volume and recovery capabilities. But I think twice a week is is optimal. That's what I would aim for anyway. Um, again, it's going to come down to like the volume in each of them sessions. It's going to come down to again the person's recovery capabilities. And um, each set, like if you're hitting a muscle group twice a week, you're not going to be able to run, you know, 15 sets per muscle group twice a week. Recovery is just not going to allow for that. Um, and you're not going to progress that way. So if we are training twice a week, we really have to monitor, you know, volume. And a lower volume approach on a muscle group twice per week, I would definitely opt for rather than, say, a lot of volume and the muscle group on its own once a week. Mm. Mark, just just while while you're talking about that, I just have something I want to ask. When you are looking at like in, in assessing a program, what would be signs to you that they're not recovering? Is it just based on muscle soreness? Would it be strength decreases? What would you yeah. look for? Good question. So, muscle sore, soreness isn't always a bad thing. You know, it's not needed for hypertrophy, but it's not a bad thing. But if it's coming to the getting to the point where you are, say for example, you train legs on a on a Tuesday, and you're you want to train them again on a Friday. If you're getting like it's okay if we're sore the Wednesday or Thursday, whatever. But if we come to the Friday and you still feel not recovered and you still feel sore, or there's way too much volume in that in that fourth session because you you want to be fresh and ready to go for that second session. And um, as well, another indication could be strength, hitting plateau and strength. Um, dips and strength, that will happen from time to time. It's We can't progress all the time. So I usually say like after, if a, if a couple of sessions in a row tend to, you tend to kind of dip in strengths, well, then we have to look at things. But if it's a one-off session, they happen, you know what I mean? So if, if one-off session, you feel like strength has dipped, you can't just jump to conclusions and start reducing volume because it could be just a one-off thing. So if you're looking at it, say, from, from a month perspective, and yeah. say that last month they had lower frequency and strength was increasing, and this month their strength wasn't necessarily there, but higher frequency, you would pull that down to an indication saying you're not recovering? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And um, and like if if I feel somebody is handling volume very well, they're getting stronger, their recovery is absolutely perfect, you know, that's another way I'd be, okay, they can handle more. So we may creep volume up a touch. You know, yeah. because they, they're actually able for that. So, it's, again, it's just monitoring their recovery, their strength levels, you know, and then and then kind of just adjusting volume from that. 
Yeah, no, really good. Dermot, anything you want to throw into that mix? No, hit metal on the head. It's all squat on there. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, so it, the reason why we want to put on these Q&As, guys, as well, inside the podcast, is it does give us a lot more of an insight to actually dive into topics. You know, when we put Q&As on Instagram, we only get like a brief minute or so to really cover a good topic but at least now we can dive into it so now i've really enjoyed those two answers so far we definitely answered them very well and gave a ton of information so the last one we're going to answer and just the simple bias that we have got a lot that we want to talk about today um but a question that i feel a lot of people will want to know the answer to and probably ask and it's probably on a lot of people's minds especially females would you recommend this is from jade cummins would you recommend for building glutes Sumo deadlifts or a conventional deadlift? Dermot, I think you're going to fire off on that one. Yeah. Okay. So the main difference, or the so mechanically, when we look at the sumo deadlift, you're going to be eking out a lot of force, losing force out toward each plate. Um. So uh, like as you create friction with the ground and you're going your feet are you're gonna lose force out towards each plate. So I don't really I would only program a sumo deadlift if people really wanted it and they enjoyed it. Even from then, um I would probably have them pull off blocks depending on how depending on the individual. Like if they're built built to deadlift, then pulling from the ground is gonna be absolutely fine. But if the goal, if the goal is glute hypertrophy, um, I would use a conventional deadlift to train hip extension, and then I would use like a, a abductor machine to train abduction. Instead of trying to do both at the same time, just because in that sumo deadlift position, our glutes aren't in a fantastic position to produce force and to c- contract under load, um. But like a, a mixture of both. Like I, I can't, I can't see, like why we can't transition between the two of them. Like it's not going to be any harm to have a twelve-week block of sumo deadlifts in, especially if you like if you enjoy them and you think that they feel good, then run with them, go for it. Like it, it is down to the individual. Um, at the end of the day, and there's a, there's a lot of people who are very very strong sumo pullers and have have fantastic posterior chains. And again, like I'm gonna give like a really non-sciencey answer, but I think a lot of it comes down to as well. Like, if you're trying to target your glutes and you're asking what what exercise works better, like what do you feel better? What do you feel like your glutes can connect with better on what exercise? You know, it's a very it's a very blunt answer, but you know, if we concentrate on what actually you, what exercise you feel your glutes firing most in, and what you're able to load the most. That gives you an indication of what's kind of better for you for for training the glutes. Would you agree with that? Um, just and you you probably you probably will agree with me as well as like if you're going to use a sumo deadlift as a meat and potato movement as as your main movement, then like I I don't think we need a fantastic mind muscle connection. Like like. Once you start, he's not himself. Once you start to load up an RDL, like you don't tend to get as much glue from them. It just tends to be, let's move this weight from A to B. Let's keep my form consistent, um, and let's progress my logbook. So if it's going to be a meat and potato movement, 
um, I wouldn't be chasing sensation as much. But if you're going to be using it towards the end of your session or as a primer, then absolutely. Uh, that's that's something that I, Mark taught me about, I don't know, about two years ago when I spent, <laughs> I spent my entire training career just pissing around, looking for movements that feel good. Um, yeah, so, sometimes it's important to just know that this movement is 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 loading posterior chain and just load it up. Get, get strong as fuck on it. Yep. Fully agree. Point, yeah. Fully agree. I feel that. I, I feel I feel like you said it does boil down to preference of the clients, but just like what you, you boys said, when you're looking at feeling a muscle versus training a muscle, I feel are two completely different things. And when you look at like a conventional deadlift, I would argue could potentially be better for glute development. You're in a more of a lengthened position in the bottom range. If you keep the hips high, you're going to pull a lot more from that posterior chain. You're going to get a better indication of hip extensioning, probably a better glute contraction in the top because you're not in a massively abducted position. Then when you're looking at sumo, you're starting off in massive external rotation, abduction, not a very strong position to pull from. If you're looking at it from a muscular point of view, you're looking at it from a from a power lifter, you move that way from A to B with minimal range of motion, sumos all day long. If you're looking at it from a bit more of a muscle building perspective, probably would pull more conventional. But like the boy said, in these type of movements, it doesn't boil down to feel. It boils down to keeping keeping load strict, keeping load heavy and keeping form strict. I think that's going to be your biggest driver of, of muscle building inside your glutes. You can jump onto, an, like Dermot said, an abduction machine, do very slow, contractile position of a hip thrust, you'll feel your glutes. But if you pull heavy load from the floor, you potentially build bigger glutes because that full posterior chain exercise, that's going to build everything. It's going to build traps, lats, rhomboids, glutes, hamstrings, adductors, everything, absolutely everything on that posterior chain. I think that's what we should be more trying to prioritize when you're looking at those exercises is what's going to build the biggest in regards to the load that I use from a mechanical perspective. I think it's hard to argue that a sumo, from, especially from a mechanical perspective, that sumo would be better than a conventional. Yeah. I think um, even though you said like sometimes like loading the bar and going, that, that is very, very important. But if you're going through warm-up sets and you actually feel you're just, you're just moving away for the sake of it. And, you know, if you're warming up and the muscles you're trying to actually target aren't firing at all. No, it doesn't matter how much you load the bar. Yeah. No, you're going to be moving weight regardless. Yeah. You know, so I think everything has to be fired. You have to be feeling it in the warm ups. And then as you progressively get heavier, things are locked in. And then I think as the adrenaline stuff kicks in, sometimes you will run through a set of, of deadlifts or whatever and you, you won't even feel a thing. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you, can't even, you can't even remember the set. You know, so. I think the warm-ups are important to make sure everything's firing. And then, like you said, once you get in, it's about putting my on that bar. Absolutely. So, AJ Morris put up a fantastic post about training the posterior chain. He said, you have to let form slide a tiny bit and just move that way from A to B. Build density inside the muscle. You have a decent decent connection to the muscle. Like you said, in, inside those early, early warm-up phases, you will have that inside of the, the big lifts. Yeah. So yeah, so I think do we all agree on that that conventionals are better? I think that answers your question. Yeah, I I, I prefer professionals definitely. Yeah, Dermot. Um, <laughs> I I don't think we can say better nor worse worse 
I think it's down to an individual bias. But yes, I, I would 95% of the time go conventional, yes. Yeah. Right, fantastic. So there were just the three questions that we got in that we felt were most applicable to just a general audience and that you could learn a lot from because it's like I said, when you dive deep into an answer, there's obviously a lot more than just answering it from, from A to B. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed those answers anyway. Right. Well, we're going to start off just this roundtable discussion with, I suppose, of really what, what is hypertrophy? You know, if you were to look at the term hypertrophy, the word hypertrophy, what does that word mean? I'll let Dermot fire away on this one. Yeah. So, when we look at hypertrophy it being an enlargement of a muscle cell, the two, the two types are going to be sarcoplasmic and myofibular. So sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is usually something that we see um, in the first kind of, in your first period of training when people get them kind of newbie gains, which is like a fill out in glycogen, um, a fill out in, in storage and just a general more kind of fuller muscle to a certain extent, so you may gain some sarcoplasmic hypertrophy by, by training um, in kind of higher rep ranges, but I don't believe it should be the one that you should be focusing on. Um, I feel like it can come as a byproduct of myofibular hypertrophy, um, and that is the one that's really main the, the most focused on. So our potential mechanisms of hypertrophy are mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. So this is going to be something that we're going to we're going to take a bit of a deep dive onto in our seminar. But I, I'll give a general kind of overview. So mechanical tension is you, you're gonna you're gonna have like mechanosensors is or just fancy words or mechanoreceptors, and they're like that. That's the part that is going to feel a mechanical tension once you reach a high force slow velocity rep so basically as reps start to get hard you're going to notice mechanical tension that is going to send off a molecular um signaling signaling cascade muscle protein synthesis gains basically um so from there we have metabolic stress. So one of one of the things that um, metabolic stress and muscle damage are, are kind of a maybe, to be honest. Um, in, in my point of view, they're a maybe. Do they actually offer that much benefit to hypertrophy? So a lot of the byproducts of muscle damage and metabolic stress we're going to see from mechanical tension. So. Let's go muscle damage first. We, we know that muscle damage can have negative effects. So muscle damage can have negative effects. Um, also, what we do see after muscle damage is like um, an increase in muscle cell, or sorry, not muscle cell, and muscle protein synthesis and satellite cell proliferation. Sorry, I'm speaking too fast. Um, so with with them, they are basically the, the the increase there is just to repair the muscle and not necessarily to rebuild beyond. So there won't be a net profit of new proteins. Um, that that cascade will just repair what we've already built. 
um, in in kind of in the opinion of a, a lot of smarter people than me, to be honest. Um, um, metabolic stress. So when it comes to metabolic stress, there is kind of two byproducts that maybe have um, lots of benefit. One being um, like cellular swelling. So that is just going to be like a a hydration of the cell that can force an anabolic adaptation or um, a accumulation of inflammation. Um, so what we can see is that like if you take an antioxidant around the post work or around the workout window that we can blunt hypertrophy and that is down to some some pathway to do with the reactive oxygen species that I that that I can't talk about because it is far too in depth for me to explain. Um, and I went on a little bit of a ramble there, um, but th that is also sorry. It just I've been so used to I'm just getting used to programming for seminar. So that that is where we're at. Sorry for that. <laughs> no, but I think pe we, people needed to understand that. You know, people needed to understand what the term hypertrophy means, and essentially from a muscular point of view and a cellular point of view, what has to happen for that terminology to actually occur and for muscle building to, to really to happen? Because just like the, the first question we got, there seems just to be a massive misconception around that word. You know, people think to train hypertrophy, it means to train in a certain rep range or a certain program or a certain time under tension, but they don't understand that really what that terminology actually means, I suppose. Um, when, when we're looking at then, I suppose moving into it more of a programming consideration standpoint, when we're looking at how to set up programming or what would be our kind of priority inside of a program. So if we were setting up a program for one of our clients or ourselves, what would be one of your top priorities of, of what you would put into that program? Um, Personally, I would first of all see maybe what the client's weaker areas are, and then I would kind of bias the program, um, mainly focusing biasing the program around the weak areas. Do you mean weak body parts? Sorry, sorry, weak body yeah. parts. I don't mean so. Uh, I'm not saying weak. I'm just saying parts that may like we all have strong parts and weaker points. So really biasing the program around their weaker areas to help bring them up to match their other developments. Okay. And then from there, it's really about, you know, taking into consideration their lifestyle as well. So how many times a week they can train, you know, um, cause even if you want to program five days training, but they can realistically only train three, you know, that's their lifestyle considerations. We have to take into consideration, you know, as well as that there's, there's people's what well, the exercises people enjoy, the exercises, you know, they may they feel like they can't do because of maybe restrictions such as injuries, um, exercise they feel like they connect with best. Like we have to take these into consideration too when programming for our clients. Because if you have programming a lot of exercise that clients doesn't enjoy, they're not going to enjoy the they're not going to enjoy the program and they may not necessarily adhere to it. You know, so like I said, it's important to take into consideration their lifestyle, how many days they can train, 
what exercise they like, what exercises they may not connect with well, or they may not be able to actually perform due to their mechanics, etc. What exercises suit their mechanics best? No, like like we know, some people may find that they actually can't squat properly and don't and get no benefit from a squat at all. So why would you program a squat for someone who feels like that they get nothing from it? Do you feel that that sometimes comes down to the wants of the trainer? You know, big thing at the moment is heavy pulls. You know, everyone seems to be favoring towards heavy pulls. Some some coaches are programming really heavy pulls for people when the clients necessarily don't like or want. And it's really pushing that bias of what the coach wants out of the program instead of what the client needs out of the program. Yeah, I think... Now, don't get me wrong, it is important to an extent that if the client wants results, they may not like some parts of the program. Yeah. You know, they may have to do certain things that they may not necessarily enjoy, but for us, I think it's important to, for a lot of program and the majority of it, the program things that they are happy with and they want to be doing. You know, otherwise, if it's all something that they don't like and it's all just what the trainer wants, some people may not like that and may not be able to adhere to it. They may not want to adhere to it. Yeah, definitely. You agree? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I like I like the you're just like just get get on with something some things. Just just like sometimes you have to do things that you don't enjoy. It's good for you. <laughs> nobody enjoys nobody enjoys the rest pause system, but we all have to do them. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Especially if it's on like a hack squat or something that's not gonna be quite good. But like the same like like you said, dude, you you have to do them things. You know, nothing good comes out of comfort zones and you have to program tough things at times. And this is why I think as well sometimes there can be a bit of a misconception around when we ask, well, what does a client like to do? Because no client likes to hack squat. No client is going to want to pull from the floor. But we know from a sense of hypertrophy and trying to design a program around muscle building, there are certain things that we have to do. Um, when we're looking at them from like that programming aspect, what would be kind of your order of priority? So let's say for myself, I really enjoy a sense of like activation then kind of load so say we're going to load say we're going to train quads today i like to do some adduction to really fire up the adductor some leg extension then i'll go into maybe a leg press motion or a squat pattern do you, do you feel the same when it, when it comes to program i use more on that bias well um, yeah like that that's how i program for, for myself that's how i program for the majority of people so yeah yeah hmm. mark yeah i'd be a, i'd be a fan of that as well i like you know, a, a curl or an extension before, you know, a, a compound squat or a press moving for legs. Um, maybe not necessarily for, say, say chest. Or delts is a good one. I Sometimes I opt for, you know, some sort of side raise, cuffed lateral or something before you go into a heavy press. But chest, not necessarily. I would happily go into chest, a chest movement, heavy pressing, and without any kind of flying or anything like that. So I think it just depends on... It depends on a few things, like the, the, what you think. Some muscles, you, you may feel like you need some more activation than before. It may benefit the client. Um, but again, it depends on the client as well. It, it's all very, you know, depend on the situation. 
I think as well, understanding really the importance of to activate don't annihilate. You know, if you go into a set of leg extensions and you bury yourself on leg extensions, the first exercise, and then you attempt to hack squat, you you have to, I think, prioritize the importance of the program. This is what I wanted to get to. So say we're talking about progressive overload, right? And, and we have a quad session that's driven towards that mechanical tension stimulus. Where, where should the kind of threshold lie, do you think, inside those early set systems? Like how far should you push that activation? Yeah. Um, so this is something that I just I was just doing up there for a practical application for a seminar. Um, so see it's very hard for us to say because we say all this and then we go and absolutely kill ourselves on exercise one so like <laughs> what should we actually do um we probably should let's say we're like extension before a hack we probably should be leaving two reps in the tank yeah yeah i think depending on the volume you have as well so if you have two sets programmed for leg extension before you go into, a, say for example, a hack, you can take them further than if you were to do program three sets. Yeah. Would you? Yeah, and I, I think you just, you just froze there, Mark. But yeah, no, I would definitely, I would definitely agree. Um, I, I do feel like, when we are entering into that realm of of activation you do have to just know your threshold a little bit and like you said especially when it comes to movements like sorry quads. no no problem movements like quads especially that can get fatigued quite quickly or like you said delts you know if you if you put yourself into a really intense set of rest pauses on a cuff lateral before doing a dumbbell shoulder press that's going to fry them but i also feel like there are certain movements that can take a little bit more threshold. Like let's say hamstrings for argument's sake, we could go through quite an intense rest pause system on a seated leg curl and then go on RDL. Yeah. You know, they, that seems to complement that quite well. When that's nearly in that pre-exhausted state, it just seems to offer a little bit more stability around that load. Whereas versus say quads, I wouldn't push quads to that extensive level and then go on split squat or, or hack squat or barbell squat. I, I think it, it does depend on your exercise selection as well. So, for example, um, like if you are so, doing something that you have a stable base. So let's let's say you're only let you're only um. Let's say you're going a one being leg extension, and then you're going into squats. Then I would leave reps mm. in the tank. But if I was gonna go leg extension, hack squat, leg press you can probably bury yourself on, on the leg, leg extension and be absolutely fine. Because you have that bit of stability on the hack? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when, when you're then prioritizing the the setup, so say, let's say we, we all agree that, you know, exercise one is more activation. We could go maybe exercise two. Would you go directly into then the, the progressive overload on your big compounds or – do you like to favor big compounds being later on in the session or do you like earlier in the session? Mark, go for that. Um, again, it depends on the client as well. I find that with some clients, they're, they're loading on compound exercises isn't necessarily affected 
later on in the session. Mm. But with others, if if you program a compound for them for for the exercise or so, their their loads will be re, um, dramatically reduced in comparison to if they done it four or seconds. So again, it depends. Um, it, it just really depends. Personally, I would prefer going in early on in the session with a with a heavy compound. But like I said, it just depends on on each on, a, on each client. I think when you're looking at it as well, keep keeping certain things safe. So let's say for argument's sake, if we do leg extension, seated leg curl, adduction, and then go into squat, that that could be okay because it's all stable. Whereas if we done leg extension, goblet squat, maybe V squat, something that's a little bit unstable, and then went into do a barbell back squat, you're going stable, unstable, unstable, unstable. Whereas I feel like things like lower back can flare up stability within that big compound, maybe a little bit compromised because you've pre-exhausted so much of those synergistic muscle groups inside of your first set systems. But at the moment, in my, in my leg session, I'm doing Cybex, um, Cybex leg press, which is pretty stable, stack design, leg extension, adduction, and then safety bar. But I feel when I get to safety bar, my stabilization is fantastic. But I feel my, my quads are like pre-fried. But it also, it's a nice stimulus getting under load when you're fried, but have a really good approach to your stabilization as well. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Like, so personally, I'd be the exact same. I'd keep things, like I'd keep my hacks or my meat, meat and potatoes moving a little bit later. Mm. Um, I think it depends how strong you are as well. So the likes of you and you and Mark, um, like, are, like the later you keep it that, the, the more buried you're going to be. Um, we do need to take into consideration like uh, central nervous system fatigue accumulation um, as our power is elevated for like the duration of that session. The longer that session goes on, the more nervous system fatigue will accumulate. So uh, on that, that note as well, like maybe having your bigger movement earlier. But I think as, as you said, lads, it just depends. Do you think it depends on body part as well? Like, I know if I say, like, Mark, you said delts, I, I couldn't have a delt press motion fourth or fifth exercise in. They'd be yeah. fried. Fried. Or like you said, I chest. Agree. I do feel like if you'd done maybe like a pec deck, if you'd done some, some other form of fly motion, a stable press motion, and then try to dumbbell press, it wouldn't have the same bang for your buck. I think you'd have to maybe prioritize that earlier on. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. Even the likes of triceps, like if you were to go... Mm. Some a couple of push down exercises, maybe, and then like a push down, an overhead extension, and then into say dips. The, the load on, on the the dips would be greatly affected. Mm. So yeah, I think I think you're right. It depends on the body parts. I think you can get away with it for the likes of legs and back. Yeah. Well, I think delts, arms, chest, they can really be affected later on in the session. Because yeah. one thing that I noticed when I trained with you, Mark, a couple of weeks ago, we ran to that SST, and when we like massively pre-exhausted chest first in those later pushing movements, you remember when we done yeah. that um, the this the upright um, chest press? I was saying yeah. all triceps, all triceps, and you were saying it's just we've just we just programmed it far too late that you're just yeah. finding it so hard to get anything through because you're just so exhausted in your chest. Everything's gone. Everything, that's that's you're just trying to recruit 
through that movement. So definitely being smart with your with your programming. Like we said, we don't we think we all agree there that pressing motions just aren't suited for later on in the program. Definitely not after pre exhausting, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely not an SST. Pre exhausting can do funny things. Um it can like it can make you use other muscle groups more or like or it can put you in a position where that muscle is now fatigued and weaker and you can accumulate more effective reps on that muscle group. Um, that I've, I've explained that horribly. Um, no, 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 I don't think you have. I think you, you are hitting the nail on the head and I think that would as well a lot boil down to exercise selection as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let's say for argument's sake, like what we were speaking about with chest, if we're doing... I think Mark we did what probably four exercises and which three of them were pressing motions and then went into it was a fifth pressing motion. Whereas if yeah, we would have done yeah. say three pressing motions and then say two fly motions where you could have say maybe like a cuff attachment on the elbow and just stay in that big contractile position where you're not utilizing anything from the tricep or delts to press wrong, that would be like a really useful tool to put later on. Like a leg extension, prime example. You've, you've done leg extension five or six exercises in, instead of a barbell squat, you're you're locked in, cemented, secured. Nothing else can really kick into play. Is that kind of what you were getting at in a roundabout way? Exactly what I was. Yeah. yeah, I knew what you were trying to get at, and I was like, well, I, know, I know what he means. I just hope everyone else knows what he means. Monkey, my brain wasn't catching up with me and <laughs> <laughs> um, right when we're looking at i think this is a big big topic at the moment when we're looking at execution right where do we allow execution to slightly take a backseat to so say what movements what muscle groups do you feel that we have to you know sometimes prioritize load over a little bit of execution um so the only personally the only movement that i think that this is acceptable on um is a barbell row because of the backward or actually we're going to go with like most back movements because I'm, I'm sure you've heard kind of people talk about this is like your back is weak because the profile of your movements is wrong which isn't necessarily the case if like let, let's say we look at like AJ Morris or even like Arnold rowing. It's like there is an accidental profile manipulation because of the torso position and the tempo that is used in a barbell row. So if you like from the bottom of your barbell row potentially chuck that barbell up towards your midsection and you pull your shoulders back, that moment arm is is after like becoming one quarter of the length that it was at the bottom so it means that we can that that's kind of i program a lot of ugly barbell rows which is that movement where you use the momentum and let your upper body come up up tall it just ends up being a fantastic movement that just leaves you in tatters um I, and you just go for it there that, that's me i think um I think when it comes to pulling off the floor or any sort of, of pulling, um, I think people 
if people see rounded shoulders when you're pulling off the floor, they will they will jump down your throat a a poor form or letting form slip. But realistically, if if spine is neutral, yeah, I think shoulders can roll. Well, when like when you're pulling, like you cannot pull max loads, um, even a max set of five or eight, even you cannot pull them like with a dead straight back, dead straight shoulders. You know what I mean? There's got to be some sort of if you're really going truly maxing and, and truly to failure on them, and um, once the spine is neutral, I, I I can allow for you know some rounding of, of the shoulders. Yeah, I agree. Basically, if your scapula is engaged the whole time, yeah, not heavy enough. Yeah, yeah. If, your, if your scapula can control that load, yeah, that load is not heavy enough, yeah. or unless you have the world's strongest scapula, well, you, you can keep, keep that engaged at plus two hundred kg. You, you, like you said, Mark, you, you have to sacrifice it at some point. And I feel... I think like... No, sorry, go on. Like, execution is extremely important. But I think people try and make things look too pretty at the sacrifice of training hurts. Yeah, I agree. But then as well, too often. you have to know the fine line as well yeah. between trying to just consistently chase progression then neglecting execution because at the end of the day the old saying you cannot fire a cannon from a canoe and when you're looking at trying to fire a muscle it has to come from some form of a stable platform and if you're looking at like we say barbell rows prime example we purposely come into more of an extensive position of the hip on the way up just to get that good position of a shortened lap we're trying to pull that barbell towards our hip so we're going to be a little bit sloppy but if you're looking at the bottom range of it of a chest press and you're bouncing that barbell off your chest it's way too unstable so i feel sometimes we have to look at the priority of execution and the priority of progressive overload and you just have to have that really fine line where execution comes down 15 percent just to allow more load to be present where i think anything more than 15 10 percent off where tempo is starting to be lost where you're potentially using too much momentum in that bottom range, that's when I think it has to be addressed and nailed in. And, you know, a lot of people are just chasing that beat the log book now. And is that a right approach? Is that a right mentality to have? Just beat your log book. Like, a, yeah, like, like we said, you can get very emotionally attached to your log book. Um, where, you will try and progress it at all costs, regardless of if execution is still good, if you can still feel the muscle. Like once that weight goes up, that's all that matters. And that's not the case. That shouldn't be the case. You know, um, like you'll see, just say, say for example, you'll see people like posting maybe pressing videos of dumbbells or barbells, etc. And they'll be like, oh, PB, uh, we'll have to work on my depth next time. You know, you know what I mean? Like, so, Execution should be there, and then, then build on on them numbers mm. with that execution. Yeah, you know, rather than rather than just trying to throw weight on just to beat that book, but then you're recruiting less muscle by doing so. So What's, would you would you would you think say if we're looking at execution, number one is keeping full range or what we would call active range. So like 
you look at some barbell pressing videos and range is terrible. Range that we would know is not an active range. So never sacrifice range of motion. Then tempo would come into play massively. Never I think, be too sloppy with tempo. Yeah, I don't think... I think once you have full control of the weight on the, on the eccentric and you're able to control it, you know, rather than just kind of dropping the weight onto you and then trying to press. So, yeah, I think controlling the, the, the tempo, more or less just controlling the eccentric and having full control and actually being able to own that weight rather than the weight owning you. And how, how important do you think as well having some degree of control on that concentric as well? That, that plays a massive role in it as well too. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I think like if you can just re- just when it comes to like longevity and joint forces and stuff, just controlling your change in direction and only attack a concentric as aggressively as you can keep control. Because what we spoke about in the seminar is well, load changes all the time, and sometimes the more momentum we have behind the load can negatively impact, like you said, the joint forces. If we have a, a barbell row and we're too aggressively letting that barbell row fall or a press motion you have a machine press and you're too aggressively letting that weight come down you're consistently changing the the profile the movement because you're just allowing way too much force to be generated into that eccentric phase and then that in return is going to negatively impact that concentric press if you have a 100 kilo barbell and let that barbell fly down to your chest what what from the muscular recruitment is going to get that back up very little, but yeah. from a joint perspective, you could nearly say an awful lot, right? I think, I think there's a big difference between aggressively moving the concentric mm. and aggressively contracting the concentric. Yeah. It's, it's hard to explain that, but you can aggressively move that way with a contraction rather than just aggressively moving it and having no clue what, what moved it. Right, here's a, here's a good example of that, right? So you when you chest fly, because it's something I've seen you do, you very aggressively push your elbows towards your chest, but you don't aggressively move the weight. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because it's something so, I've seen you do. You, you don't move the weight quickly, but the aggression of your contraction, bringing your elbow towards that midpoint of your chest is, is aggressive in its nature, but it's not aggressive in speed or tempo. Is that what you're yeah, trying to say? Yeah, because there's such an internal focus of what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, like, I'm not thinking of moving, just getting that weight up. I'm aggressively thinking of that internal cue of contracting the muscle while moving the weight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a spot on that. Um, like, just because we train a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that it should be matched either. So say a period of you using a slow concentric for you to nail accuracy. Like if that means that you can you can now learn how to contract the muscle and then you can transition into a, a training with a bit of aggression, that's where you start. You, you agree, Lula? Yeah. yeah. 100%, I think. Especially when you're, te- when you're looking at, I think from a beginner to a moderately advanced, they should have to nearly earn a right to show you that they can move load correctly you know if you if you have a someone who's training three years come true and they're telling you right i want to get stronger and they send you over a video of them doing a leg press motion or a squat pattern and you just know that that internal cue and focus is just way 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 off 
they don't deserve a right to be allowed to focus on a progressive overload program. They have to be stripped back from day one. And this is why I think it's, it's so important to actually have a, have a coach who coaches at a high level to have that authority to sometimes say to people, you're not maybe where you think you are in regards to a programming perspective. You know, if you, if you jump into a leg press and you just throw that weight with me to be versus having that really good internal focus point to know the pressing, pressing positions and contractile positions, sometimes people shouldn't be focusing on strength if they don't really understand the full movement pattern. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, Absolutely. I think even like you can really emphasize that on one-to-one coaching as well because you'll see a client may come to you and they'll be doing a leg press, say, say for example, a leg press on, on a certain way and they would be, they'd be going through and it'd be fine. But then they learn how to cue properly. They learn how to create that internal focus and drive through where you're asking to drive. And even though it's the same way, they'd be like, Jesus Christ, that feels so much different because they're not just trying to move the weight up and down. They're actually using their mind to actually internalize the situation and drive with the muscle. And it feels, once they f- f- realize what that feels like, they will never return back to their old way because they realize how different it actually feels. But that's a green light then for now start to use yeah. more out. 100%, yeah, definitely. Yeah. When we're looking at um, periodization of programming, would you often periodize strength, volume, strength? Or what way do you, do you structurize the periodization of your programs? Um, Mark, go for that. Okay. Um, the way my sessions are set up, I like a lot of the time I have a mixture of like I have the loading sets in there but then as the session pro- progresses we may have kind of higher volume stuff in there you know so you have have a mix of both um, when it comes to periodization I I am one for running the training plan for as long as we possibly can to eke out like if we're still progressing I do not see any point in changing it you know, a lot of people disagree with that, but if we're still progressing with perfect form, perfect execution, and you're getting stronger, there's muscle being laid down. You know, so it may come to a stage where fatigue builds up um, and you hit kind of plateaus and there's, called, there's telltale signs for like a deload, so you may pull back for a week uh, and then jump straight back in and then you'll take off again. Um, or there may be times where exercise is really stalled for I kind of go by the, by the rule like if an exercise stalls for maybe just a random exercise will stall for if it's three sessions that's stalled that's, it's time to rotate that out I usually go with that rule kind of three sessions and then rotate out okay I that's the way I like to run things um, and again and then I, I just then I just adjust volume as we go based on what the person can actually actually recover from yeah. Um, yes, so, personally, that's kind of like I, I, I've t- taken I've taken every single approach under the sun. So I've taken auto-regulated deloads. I've taken functional or, or yeah, functional overreaching um, into a deload program. Um, and I personally think like the the minute difference 
it, it, it's so minimal and sometimes like it's just not necessary as mark said just take a photo run it into the ground um but if, if you want to give, give a go at like periodization um so like i, I worked at gary i worked with uh, skinny gas gary mcgill triage um and he'd be like you if you know him you know how stupidly smart that bloke is um and he, he, yeah he had me running um a slight taper over four weeks so i'd run, run a program and would start with two reps in the tank maybe like three sets and then by the end of week four i'd be doing four sets one rep in the tank um and like obviously I, I now would probably buy a strain to failure. Like even even still, like that taper up, that periodization is tough as hell, and it, it does offer, like it does offer benefits. You, you can grow very very well, and I think it just is so down to individual bias and enjoyment that it doesn't even matter either. Exactly, I think individual preference is number one thing. I think on understanding your 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 yourself. And your client base as well is the number one thing. You know, I know for, for myself, depending on experience level of, of clients, I could have people who like that we could run client, we could run programs for eight to ten weeks and they can enjoy it. I have others who will change programs every four weeks. Yeah. Okay. Because agree, yeah. number one, I, I truthfully feel as well that females max out strength capacities a lot earlier than males. I notice my, my girls will max out will max out movements in four to six weeks. You have someone on, on a on a hip thrust or a hack squat, they're gonna hit their strength barriers in a lot shorter succession versus how we would. You know, because it, it can it can it can jump on many different things. If I give them six weeks at a program and I tell them in six weeks your program is changing, their strength jumps are usually quite big, which I find is a good thing. Whereas sometimes I feel with males, and as well, it's not a bad thing, air strength, air strength progressions are a little bit lesser because sometimes we're a little bit smarter with our approach to strength progressions as well. You know, we'll go up 2.5 kilo at a time where females just whack on 10 to 15 kilo at a time onto their hip thrust and just throw that weight up from A to B. But I think it does boil down to preference. And also from a female, I think from a female's perspective who isn't that experienced, they enjoy different frequencies of programs yeah i think i think it's i think that's fairly fairly safe to say if you have a female that's only training a couple of years that isn't like a really high level you can give her a new program every four weeks she's gonna still progress she's gonna build new muscle at the end of that four weeks she has gained some level of strength but then also what i I think really needs to be brought to the table is that factor of new stimulus needs to be put in as well you know if you have strength for four weeks and then potentially we bring strength down and focus on a little bit more volume you could utilize the same movement patterns or throw in different movement patterns but i do feel like that does create a very good response as well consistently having a new stimulus being added into the mix would you agree or disagree yeah no no i i i, I agree yeah um i i think you, you you've covered two really important points there like um yeah, no. I think um, it depends on, on, on the client as well. Some clients may only, they may get bored. Clients do get bored sometimes. So they may only want to run, run a, a program for a certain amount of time. 
then their their focus will go will start to go their adherence will start to drop and just due to that alone not even taking anything into consideration like performance wise or anything just for the simple fact that they're starting to lose interest that's also a good time to, to change things up yeah I, I kind of psychological aspect of yeah not being excited to train yeah and I think about, a lot of it a lot of it again I think to boil down to a female I think because I, I know we have many clients on board now and I probably have like 97% females and I, I just know that the lads that I have can happily happily stick out a program for 8, 10, 12 weeks they love it they love the structure they love knowing what to do in the gym seeing their progressions over a long period of time but with the females it's like no four weeks every month give me something new give me new no movement parts give me something different but you know as well I think from, from a coaching perspective it's nice I think it's nice changing around programs every now and again sometimes it can be a bit of a pain in the arse to write programs consistently <laughs> but it's nice to keep yourself on your toes a little bit. You know, it's nice to jump from program to program. I really love that systematic approach now of pushing volume for four to six, pushing or pushing strength for four to six, pushing like really high volume then for maybe two, three, four weeks. And just having that like jump back and forth approach. I think females are responding like extremely well to that. And I, you know what? I enjoy coaching as well. I enjoy coaching new programs, different programs, looking at different exercise selection, exercise order, exercise priority inside, like what we spoke about earlier, putting your compounds first, putting your compounds last, putting your compounds in the middle. I think it just makes it very exciting for us and very exciting for them. Yeah, I, I agree that this is a big game of trial and error. And yeah. like the longer you work with, with a client, the, the, more, the more active these things can be. Yeah, 100%. 100%. When we're looking at, because it's just something we touched on to start there, deloads. When to deload? And what, what are the telltale signs that someone needs to be deloaded? Okay. Well, Damon, do you like this one? Ah, um, I was going to say that this would be good for you. <laughs> I can take well, it. I like this one. I like this one. Okay. Uh, let's, you, let's, you go first. You go first, Damon. Give me okay. your thoughts first. I'll, I'll go two. Um, the the excitement to train mm. uh, like I notice that myself and say like if I don't if I don't wake up excited mm. and I, I there's like it has to be a multitude of things that we're going to touch on so like let's say there's ten things that are signs and we have six of them then it's probably a good sign to deal out um so if I'm not excited to train and if I wake up like I've been hit by a bus. Or I wake up like a man after doing a fucking set of rest pause deadlifts or something like that. I just like crawl out of bed. Um, and go on, Adam Cover. I think so. When we're looking at fatigue, fatigue comes in many different ways. It can come from I think, like you said, readiness to train is the big one for me. Um, we're looking at overall energy throughout the day. We're looking at secretions and appetite is a big one. For yeah. males, I think a drop down in sex drive is a very, very big one as well because it, it could be a sign that testosterone levels are starting to potentially drop down from over training. Um, so th those would be the, the big the big signs for me. I think yeah. uh, sometimes as well, what I've seen from dieting phases is people putting in refeeds instead of putting in scheduled deloads and I think deloads and refeeds need to be two completely different things because this is something I've seen myself recently with somebody asking me 
do I need to be refed or do I need to be deloaded? When you're looking at being refed, it's a sense of being flat. We all agree. Deloaded is a sense of fatigue. Yeah, and we're looking at fatigue. You're looking at central nervous system fatigue could affect sleep, appetite, like everything we said, readiness, readiness to train. Then obviously, when you're looking at refeeds, it's just a set. If you're in a, if you're in a diet phase for a long time, it's just not being able to get a pump. But the, the readiness to train is there. Would you agree on that, Mark? Yeah, I think when people get that, you know, even in diet phases, when they get that tired, fatigue feeling. They will say they want to. Re- they need a refit. They, f- you know what I mean. But realistically, they just feel shit, and they may not need a refit. You know, so they may ask for one, but it's up to us to kind of dictate: do they need one, or are they just hungry? You know. So, I think, like I said, in terms of the deload, I think the number of things that come in are, you know, not wanting to train, being extremely fatigued to the point where you're just not recovering, um. Being tired, being really tired, but actually not being able to sleep, so being restless when you go to sleep. Um, obviously, loss of sex drive as well. Appetite in the bin. Um, digestion very poor. So all these things are telltale, telltale signs. And I, in the past, I would have been one to kind of fight through that. I would have been like, oh, I can't take a deload. You know, it's weak. Yeah, or, or you know, like, I'll, I'll regress it or something. But, like... Anyone listening who who has them signs and are reluctant to take a step back, it's only going to benefit you once you get back into the gym. You know, strength will increase. You know, food will go down easier. Digestion will be better, um, and you'll actually start to progress because you'll actually want to go win and train. Your intensity will be better. Your aggression in the gym towards the weights will be better. So it's like one step back, two steps forwards. Hundred percent. Yeah. I think then the, the different different types of deloads probably be good to cover as well. Yeah. So obviously we, we can have a deload where we say we're looking at this from the central nervous system point of view. So com- complete breaks, breaks from the gym. Yeah, we'd agree. Anywhere from five to seven days. And then when we're looking at that external point of view, like a big shift change in your focus to really having that central nervous system, like reactivation to enter back into the gym, things like taking caffeine breaks inside of that, week break off the gym is very important having a big priority on stress management utilizing a lot more things like daylight exposure grounding a lot more meditation and guided breathing work using tracking tools like hrv it's probably the best thing to use to be honest to to see the state of autonomic balance that we're in are we extremely sympathetically dominant or are we just on that kind of borderline I would use that as a very clear indication as well of when to re-enter back into the gym. If you're having consistent parasympathetic readings, I think it's a, it's a good sign that you know your, your central nervous system is in a position where you can start to handle stress responses. Again, I think for a lot of people, they see that level of fatigue, but don't track, measure, or manage what's going on from a stress point of view. Because a lot of people just get into the gym and hammer around weights do not consider stress, do not consider tracking stress, or do not consider having measures in place to actually manage the stress itself. When you look at HRVs, the best thing to, to utilize that with. When you see big declines in, in HRV as well, I think has to be brought to the to the discussion that that can be a factorism into a need to deload potential volume, but not deload completely away. You know, that's what I'm saying. When, when we're looking at, we can take a step away from the gym as a deload, 
but then also we can deload away from just volume. And I feel, you know, what we spoke about fatigue, lack of appetite, all those signs, I would probably say would steer us towards taking a complete step back from the gym and having a complete break away because that's more complete overall fatigue, central nervous system fatigue. But then if you look at just consistent sympathetic dominance, would you then more argue the point of, okay, let's maybe just schedule a deload from load, just focus on a little bit more volume work, but don't take them completely out of the gym? Um, I think it depends on the time. To be honest, I, I do get like I think probably the three of us. It's just like okay, I'm not trying. Mm. I can't go to a gym today. I can't if I'm deloading. I'm not going to a gym, mm. regardless of, of how ba- bad I need it. Or like I can't walk into a gym and go fifty yeah. percent. I'm not going to failure, so I just stay away. Mm. <laughs> oh, I, I I would be more in a sense of, especially with clients. I I I, I I'm I'm a big believer in. Tracking, tracking, I know it's probably gone a little bit off topic here, but tracking HRV when we feel HRV needs to be tracked, I don't feel like it's a tool that has to be tracked all year round. I really don't. I, I'm a firm yeah. believer in putting tracking measures in when we feel they need to be put in. You put someone onto a brand new program, yes, I feel it's applicable to track HRV because you have to see how they're responding from a stress management point of view. But then also, when you're starting to see that little bit of fatigue set in, then the reintroduction of HRV also can be very important because, again, I feel when you're looking at those two different types of deloads, you have to – I I myself, I know you probably wouldn't do it, Mark, but I would personally program a deload where I'm deloading away from volume, you know, going into the gym maybe just twice a week or three times a week, taking away load, just focusing on a little bit of blood flow work, you know, just doing maybe two full-body workouts where it's just no drive towards – and overload, no drive towards that stimulus of load onto the central nervous system, just going into new food round. That's it. It's a, it's a healthy way to deload as well. But again, you're looking at two different two different types. You know, Would you yeah. take away completely or do you go in and just deload away from that stress response of overload? Again, it just depends on the client, doesn't it? Yeah. If, if, if we can get someone to go in and just pull things back um, and trust them to do so and knock out the failure and not load anything um well then all well and good but for a lot of people as well it's best to just stay away because a lot of people may not be able to hold themselves back like that yeah but i think talking about all of this i think it's all well and good like thinking about this but then people have to realize that if you're not training hard in the first place don't even listen to any of this yeah, yeah, like literally, like you have to, like this is all. Well, this comes after actually training and eating. You know what I mean? Thinking about all this, like you have to actually train and apply yourself first to to have to even be worried about any of this stuff. And if you don't feel like you need a deal out, you're probably not training properly. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Yeah. So true. So true. You have to. You have to, like, if you have that level of fatigue at, at a point, it's like, oh, you've earned it. You've earned that. You've earned that week deal. 100% you've earned it. But also, I feel, and Joe, prime example, me before our last seminar, we had a massive influx of clients come in that week. I probably done 70 hours work-wise that week before our previous seminar. We'd done that seminar. I woke up the next day, and I felt like I got hit by a... <laughs> train took five days completely off the gym 
stripped back from caffeine, walked into the gym, first session in, hit an RDL PB, an all-time PB. Reintroduced flat bench press, strength up that I've never, ever seen before. I'm like, this just came out of absolutely nowhere. But I knew myself, I just knew my body that day. It wasn't planned. It wasn't scheduled. It was just completely impulsive. Took five days off, re-entered back in, and had new strength that I'd never even touched before because listened to my body, played it extremely smart and knew that I just needed to, to get away. And as well, sometimes it's not always from the gym that we may need to input that deal out. Like you have stress responders from so many different things. You have that voluntary and involuntary response of stress. Voluntary is what we cause inside the gym. Involuntary is everything that happens outside life, external. That can play a massive factorism into doing the deal out as well. You know, when you look at your, your stress management, like I said, putting 70, 70 hours of work in and then that needed me to deal out. Probably wasn't even the training. It was just yeah. a complete overload of work. Just like that entire allostatic load and then the, the trying to combat good stress with bad stress just isn't the thing that we should be doing. Um, so, yeah, no. Uh, Absolutely not. Right, I'm going to wrap it up with the three of us. Just giving, if we could give one one piece of advice for someone to train, build more muscle, um, kind of maybe wrapping up what we just spoke about today. Let's start with Derma. Give me just one one piece of advice or one take home. If you're going to talk to them about hypertrophy or a bit of advice on hypertrophy, what would it be? It doesn't matter what you do when people are looking. It's easy to train when you have eyes on you. It's e easy to eat a certain way when you have eyes on you. It's what you're doing when nobody's watching. It's the, the bedtime, the, the wake up to do your cardio. Um, it's it's the, the simple things that shouldn't be a big deal. They are just done consistently. That's yeah. <laughs> Marco, Marco ought to be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I would say pretty simply that people are a lot more a lot more capable of things than what they think they are. Mm. You know, in the gym, they there's always more. You know, they can all you can always train harder, you can always push harder, you can always do more. And like, if you look at yourself, if you this time next year, if you look back, will you be able to tell yourself that you've kind of will you be the exact same person and look the exact same, or will you have actually Trained hard, ate your meals, taking all these things we've talked about into consideration and progressed. You know what I mean? So it's very easy to go through the motions and waste time, or you can actually realize what you're capable of and then push on and make the changes by this time next year. Yeah, fantastic. Really, really good. I'd say really just understanding the application of more or less everything. You know, understand the true application of progression true application of, you know, correct nutrition, true application of, of stress and recovery. Because when you, when you really understand the application of many different things, and that's when everything seems to click. Because I think for a lot of people, they, they focus on the application of one, but neglect so many others. Like so many people we know, they train hard, but their food is just awful. They train hard, but they don't focus on sleep and recovery they train hard but they don't understand the application of, exec of execution and it's really um, Adam where can we learn about all this on the 10th of October 
<laughs> no, good little plug in. So obviously for anyone who's listening, we'll, we'll know by now that we have the event on 10th of October. We are putting on the Hypertrophy events, um, Hypertrophy weekend, but also really diving deep into health optimization as well. You know, the, the first weekend we done was just based on lower body hypertrophy where we ran through anatomy and physiology a little bit of an introduction into mechanics and then we brought you onto the gym floor and really taught you the, the true meaning of of exercise intensity this time around the the big focus point for the weekend is going to be about the classroom aspect of hypertrophy now we're talking about muscle physiology we're going to talk about exercise and mechanics we're going to just really dive deep into the gastrointestinal system, female physiology, nutritional strategies, stress, sleep, to give your body the most optimal chance to build muscle. And then when we go into the gym floor, like really looking into exercise analysis, advanced training techniques, exercise mechanics. So, you know, we're, all three of us are extremely excited for the day. And this is why we wanted to put on the podcast today was just to give everyone a little bit more of an insight onto what's going to be on the day. Now, obviously, today was just a complete roundtable discussion. What we're going to talk about on the day is going to be very, very, let's use the term geeky, but in a sense of very easy to understand knowledge, application. You can take away so much from this that you can just apply to yourself, your clients, that you'll not only know you know, just a very simple take home, but you'll know the full back end of everything as well. Yeah, yeah. we all agree, all agree on that. Yeah, could have said it better. Yeah, Dermot? Yeah, fantastic. Right, well, we're going to leave it there. Um, just on, on that note, obviously, at, at some stage, whenever you listen to this, tickets are on, on sale at the moment, but are just, like, literally just about to hit sell out for the entire weekend. So we have two different tickets on type. You can come on for just day one, and learn the theory, or you can come day one, learn the theory, and come day two, learn the theory and practical elements. The both theory and practical weekend tickets are just about sold out. We have only a two or three left for the early board price, and then they're gonna go on full sale price. So if you do want them, and we will be putting up a post over the weekend just to reiterate the point that they're just about to be gone so by the time you listen to this they're probably gone <laughs> put it that way so we're gonna wrap it up there uh, thank you very much for for coming on boys really do appreciate it no Cheers, problem. Adam. Thank really you.